We'll be reading Malachi 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 3. And if you want to follow along with one of the black Bibles there in your seats, that should be on page 802. We have been reading in Malachi the last book in the Old Testament. The prophet sent to God's people, they're back from exile, uh, but things aren't what they expected. The temple is lacking in glory, their power is weak, and the people are still seeking after comfort and prosperity. And so in the midst of their uncertainty and their doubts, God addresses them and reminds them of his love and his intention to bless his people. Let's hear now, picking up in chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I take up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard your word, which you spoke to your people through your servant Malachi. And Lord, we desire to respond with faith and understanding and obedience this morning. And yet, Lord, we are prone to cover our ears to what we do not want to hear, to hear what we want to hear. But Lord, would you speak by your Spirit what we need to hear so that we would respond in a way that glorifies you and leads to our good in Christ. Help me to serve that purpose and to not be an obstacle in any way. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. The other night, I discovered something about myself that uh, I didn't like. I should have known, uh, but wasn't happy to find out. My son, Gideon, wanted to play a game, and so we set out to play the game of life, new version that's available. And on my first card that I drew, my career card, was a race car driver. Think of so many young men and maybe some young women who would love, would kill to have that for a career, to be a race car driver. But when I looked at the car, card, despite the fact that at one point in world history, the richest 
athlete was a Formula One driver, in the game of life, they only get paid $60,000. And so later in the game, when I had the opportunity to take up a career in singing, for those of you who have been around the church long enough, know that is not something I am gifted to. When I saw that the singer made 70000 as opposed to the 60000 of the F1 racer, I discarded one career to follow the other. That rather than doing what was good and profitable in and of itself, I set it aside for what appeared to offer more money and greater gain. It's not a temptation just in the game of life, it's a temptation in real life. To either say, what good is it to follow God? What profit is it? You'll notice in this passage that as God's people are speaking against God, they're struggling because they see other people who aren't serving God, who aren't obeying Him, who are in fact seem to be testing Him, and they're treated like they are good people. God overlooks them, they're blessed, they're happy. And so on one hand, there is the temptation to say, you know what, I'm just going to go after what does profit. It seems to profit them to serve idols. It seems to profit them to ignore God's commands. Maybe I will get a better cut if I follow after something else. And even for those who don't want to disobey God, there can be that question that says, what am I doing? I'm seeking to serve God, and yet that person seems to be prospering. God doesn't despise that question. In fact, the psalmist, in the book of Psalms, God's inspired word takes up this very question. I want to read from Psalm 73 to set the context for understanding this passage. And as I do, whether it's helpful for you to close your eyes or follow along, just follow with me from verses 2 to 13 and and ask yourself, does this resonate with me? The Psalms are so very good about putting to words what we feel and experience. Psalm 73, verse 2 through 13. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Has it ever felt vain to serve the Lord? Has it ever felt empty to do the right thing and seems like you're the only one or it seems like God doesn't see or God doesn't care? What good is it to serve God? What gain or profit is there? God acknowledges that. Psalm 73 acknowledges that. 
But in our passage this morning, Malachi 3 offers for us a warning and a comfort, a warning to those who would say, ultimately, the determination of whether or not to serve God is what's in it for me. If that is your approach to serving God, to coming to church, to reading the Bible, to doing good works, then there's a warning in this passage. But if you are seeking to serve the Lord, if you are seeking to serve him not for your profit or for your gain, but because to serve him is good in and of itself, then there is comfort this morning. What reason does Malachi give that the God of the Bible is worth serving? Why should he be feared? Why should he be esteemed in worship and obedience? First of all, because he sees things as they really are. Because he remembers with grace. And because he comes to bring complete justice. These are the words of warning. These are the words of assurance from Malachi 3.13-4.3 this morning. Much of the book of Malachi is a series of disputations. God comes to the people through Malachi and says, I know this is going on. I have this against you. You're talking or speaking or acting in this way against me. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he shows them what he's talking about and then addresses the matter. That's why we pick up in 13. Again, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or not walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. And evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. In light of that feeling, in light of that lack of understanding, like of, in spite of feeling like things are upside down, the righteous should prevail, the righteous should be fat and happy. God speaks. First of all, he assures them that he sees things clearly. It's tempting for the people to see, well, God doesn't see things as they really are. God, God blesses those people who are really evildoers or wicked because he is tricked, or he's losing his eyesight, he's out of touch. How else could he let the wicked prosper? Doesn't he know what's going on? But God sees more clearly than even those who are grumbling about the situation. Because God knows the difference, God sees the difference between true service and mere lip service. Between true religion and religiosity. Between doing good because it's pleasing to God versus doing what we think is good so that we can demand good things from God. God is to be worshipped because he is worthy. Not so that we can get rich. He is to be obeyed because he is king over all creation, not so that we can better get a better crop. And so God reveals in these verses that he really sees what's going on. On one hand, there is a group of people that thinks that they are serving him when in reality they are using him to serve themselves. That's what he exposes in these verses. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they are put God to the test and they escape. And part of what he's exposing here comes on the heels of the verses that we looked at last week where they are claiming to serve God and yet they're not even paying the tithe. They're not, they're not just not going above and beyond. They're not doing the bare minimum of what God has required according to his law. And yet here they stand saying, God, we're serving you. Where's our cut? God sees the situation. 
he sees who they really are. Verse 14 says this, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They say, what good is it to worship? This, it talks about the charge to the temple and how they're supposed to act at the temple. And this idea of mourning refers back to uh, the practice that Zechariah 7 describes of how once a year there was to be a period of mourning to look back to the sin that had caused them to lose the temple in the first place, that led to the destruction of the temple and their exile in the first place. And so they're saying, what good is it to remember our past sin? What good is it to afflict ourselves? Why? Why do they say that? Because their hearts have been dull to the sin that led to their destruction. Their hands are grasping at treasure that should be contributed to right worship. God sees them. They say, look at us, we're serving you. And God says, are you really? This is not truly serving God, it's ritual. But real service to God honors him. There's a distinction. Then it moves away from these people who are asking, what good is it to profit you? And then verse 16 says, it makes a contrast, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written. Then once more, verse 18 says, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one that does not serve him. Now, it may not be obvious to the others, but there is a smaller group within the larger group of God's people who, while the larger group is grumbling, saying, God, where's our cut? Where's our prosperity? Where's our power? They begin to talk amongst themselves because they fear God. This other group is those who fear the Lord. It describes them at the end of verse 16 as those who feared the Lord and esteemed him. They knew the power and wonder and awe of who God was, and they honored him in their hearts. And yet, notice the distinction. The one group says, hey God, we're serving you, where's our cut? The second group, are they performing for people to be seen? Does it describe them as coming before God and saying, God, we fear you, we honor you, we esteem you? No, they're just going to themselves. They're reminding themselves in the midst of their suffering and their setback that they're supposed to fear the Lord. And yet, though they are not advertising it, God sees. It's like the distinction that Jesus talks about between those who walk before the Lord, like the Pharisees and the scribes who, when they are fasting, They make it evident through the way that they cover their faces that they're suffering, or they pray loud prayers in the public so that they can get the reward. But what does Jesus say? That the truly righteous go and they fast in secret. They go into the prayer closet so that others would not take notice of their prayers. God says, I see those who are performing religiosity for a reward versus those who seek to honor and esteem me even in secret, even in the minority. And one day that distinction will be made clear. Verse 18, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The question is, will we see ourselves clearly? Many in Israel say, well, we're Israel. We're God's people. We perform some rituals. We must be his treasured possession. But they fail to see their sin truly. Their lack of God that pollutes their offerings. 
the service that they're meant to perform. They fail to see the performance for profit as idolatry, and thus opposition to God, and thus wickedness. They put themselves in the category of the righteous, when if they truly saw themselves, they would be worried about the coming judgment on the wicked. Do we see ourselves clearly? One of the things that we can respond in seeing that God sees us and sees what's in our hearts and sees what's truly happening is to ask that God would help us see us. That when his word cries out with warning that our first thought would not be those people over there better watch out, but am I among those people? Am I merely going through the performance maybe of just being a really nice, gracious person on the outside without actually obeying? Or obeying and following all the rules on one hand without any actual love for God or for his people? Do we see ourselves as those in need of a heart that truly fears God and esteems him, that trusts in him instead of our performance? We ask for the Lord's help to see that we might repent and request that the Lord help us. Also, do we avail ourselves of the help of others? Note in the passage that many people are crying out, but those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. That as they're tempted to say in their discouragement, what is God doing or or what's happening? That they seek out other people that fear the Lord to help them see the truth that God is for them. That it's right and good to fear God and esteem Him. We need others to help us see our sin. To listen to when they say, brother or sister, I I think you're off there. I, I think you're forgetting to serve God or maybe you're doing this out of wrong motivation. God sees clearly and He gives us others those that can see the situation. So while we might look and say, well, well, things are backward, maybe God doesn't see. Malachi says, no, God sees better than you see. And the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, it will become apparent. And not only does God see, but God remembers. God remembers with grace for his people, those who serve him. I want to read for you the acceptance speech of Steve Carell for a Golden Globe he read. This is a few years back, if you're not familiar. He's the actor from The Office. As he gets up and receives his award, he says, Wow, I, uh, I really did not expect this, so I didn't write anything. However, my wife did and handed me something. Um, and I'd like to thank Hollywood for this honor. I would also like to thank my wife, Nancy, for her constant support and for being so beautiful tonight. That's true. Thanks also to Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant for creating such a wonderful, groundbreaking piece of television. That's good. Oh, also to my wife for giving me two wonderful children as painful as her labor might have been. Thanks to an excellent cast and group of writers. If it were not for you, I would not be here. I want to thank Nancy, my precious wife, who put her career on hold in support of mine and who sometimes wishes that I would let her know when I'm going to be home late so that she can schedule her life, which is no less important than mine. To my parents for not making me go to law school. And finally, to the love of my life, my wife Nancy. Thank you so very much. This is a great honor. As with so many things, it's funny because it's true. The truth is not that his wife wrote it. It, The truth is he wrote it as a love letter to his wife, but in so doing, acknowledging that so very often, the people who love us, who support us, who do the right thing on our behalf, often go unremembered and unrecognized. 
And so he took opportunity not just to give thanks to his colleagues, his co-workers, to those that gave him the opportunity, but to that most important woman in his life, his wife Nancy. And yet, with so many things that are humorous, often there is a hidden pain behind that. Because we know what it is like to be forgotten, to be overlooked. Parents, butts wiped, diapers changed, food made, long nights, only for the kids to only seem to remember all the things that we didn't give them. Or for friends to move on in life and forget that special stage that we had together and the support and encouragement we gave one another when we were young. Or for a colleague to get a promotion and have great success for giving how much mentoring and help and advice you gave him or her along the way. It hurts to be forgotten. To do the right thing, the helpful thing, and be left behind. And so as God's people wonder, do you see our obedience? Do you see our service? Is, is that why we're not being blessed more? There's also the question of, well, will you forget? Have you forgotten? And God, through his servant Malachi, assures the people, for behold, the day is coming when he will make things right. And until that day, as verse 16 says, the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. For those who are honoring God, who may have a more sanctified version of asking God what's going on, Malachi assures them that not only does God see them, but he will remember them on the great day of the Lord. He writes it down in the book of remembrance. Now, does God need a book to remember? No. But he is using this picture from society around them of what the kings of the day would do, that when someone did something important for them, they would write it down in a book of great events or great contributions so that the king could respond. If later you want to look it up, you can go to Esther chapter 6. And the king there has the book of events or the book of remembrance read to him and is reminded of how Mordecai had served him in the past. So that what? He could say, oh, that's a nice memory. Know that he could respond with grace and compassion and reward for that service of Mordecai. The point here is not that God is prone to forget. The illustration is not only is God faithful to remember, but so committed is he to remembering and blessing his people that he fixes it. He writes it down. You can count on it. Verse 17 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. On the day that God comes to bring judgment against the wicked and the righteous, God will remember those people that looked on him in fear and esteem and trust, serving him instead of using him to serve themselves. Notice the language there. It says, And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. That the disposition of a father towards his son or his child is to give what's good and to bless them, but also to not only protect them, but, but even more so when they're doing what's right for the father, right? To be obedient. 
And, and in this, it's bringing together kind of the images from earlier in the book of Malachi, where God's people are saying, God, why aren't you treating us with more love? And he's saying, isn't a child supposed to honor his father? Isn't a servant supposed to take care, to honor his master? And yet you are doing neither. And so when we do esteem him, when we do honor him, he treats us like a beloved child, a treasured possession, and spares us the harm and the hurt that comes with judgment. How is that possible? We get this benefit when we esteem God over the circumstances, when we put God first, when we trust in what he says, because God did not spare his own son who perfectly served him. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the possibility for us of truly being counted among the righteous. That Jesus, the perfect son of God, not only loved the father not only honored him, but perfectly served him in our place. So that by receiving what God says is our provision for us in Christ, we can be assured that when the day of judgment comes, God will not forget us, he will not overlook us, he will not ignore us, but because Christ stands at his right hand, he will forever remember us. We are forever remembered in Christ because in Christ is our righteousness. In Christ is our obedience. In Christ is our service to the King. Our hope of forgiveness, of salvation, is not an idea, it's not even a book. But it's Christ, the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of his Father. God will not forget what we do in the name of Christ for the sake of our Heavenly Father with the help of the Spirit. It tells us that everything that we do in the name of Christ, though all of the world burns away in judgment, it will be like gold and precious jewels if it's on the foundation of Christ. If we do it now, it will last for eternity. And conversely, what is lost in service will come back to us. Mark 10, 29-30, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. God remembers what we do in his name. God remembers what we sacrifice in his name because in Christ is an eternal witness of perfect obedience and perfect love in which we find our acceptance and grace and favor. We serve God because by honoring him in faith, even when we, we don't see what's going on, we look to him, his provision for us in Christ. We serve and obey him knowing that he sees and that he remembers in faithfulness his promises. And the day is coming when justice is done and the wicked will receive their due and those who look to the Lord will receive their deliverance. The last reason that Malachi gives to serve the Lord is not for our immediate profit, but because God sees things as they really are, because he remembers those who look to him in faith and trust, and because he is coming to enact complete justice. Full justice is not, what, is not doing what's right so long as it benefits you. 
It's doing what's right no matter the cost. And we looked at that a few weeks ago when God's people were asking questions about justice, forgetting that it would be costly to them for God to purify them when he comes like a refiner. But the people here are less interested in injustice than the fact that those who are unjust are getting away with injustice. They're getting away with it. They're getting rich. There is no justice, Lord. Don't you care? Don't you see? Maybe you don't see, or maybe you're not just. But God draws attention not to the immediate reward of the unjust and the just, but to the eternal reward. When he brings full destruction of evil and full blessing of the righteous. Notice that as chapter 4 opens up, and God comes and visits, as he's already talked about earlier in Malachi, that when he comes, it will be like the burning of an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. The picture here is, is not temporary judgment. The, the picture here is not a slap on the wrist for the evildoers. It's not like those in power who seem to always get away with it because they can afford the best attorneys or those who know the right people. No, the picture here is when God comes in perfect holiness and righteousness, he will eradicate evil. The first image is like a, a fiery furnace. And, and the wicked, they're not like big oak, right? They're not big logs of oak. You set, when, when you want a fire, you get a nice piece of hardwood and you throw it in the fire and it burns for a long time and gives off heat. No, he describes the evil here like chaff, like stubble, like grass clippings burned up in an instant. They're gone. They don't endure. They can't stand before the perfect holiness of God. And then he gives this other imagery. It says neither root or branch will be left. Those two pieces of the plant stand for the whole of the plant. And for those of you that have a green thumb, you know that with certain plants, if you have a bit of the root, you can regrow it. And there's even some plants, if you have the, a healthy branch, you can plant it in the soil and it will establish roots and it will grow. It will come back. Evil has a tendency of coming back. Prohibition did not eliminate alcoholism within our country. As we're seeing today, the defeat of Nazis did not eliminate anti-Semitism in our world. Evil and wickedness has a tendency to come back. But he comes to remove all of the power of sin. And so we look to him because he alone has that power. And he will come to eliminate what's wrong once and for all. We don't serve him in faith for temporary relief or a mere safe harbor in the storm of evil, we serve him because only he is fully just and will reveal his righteousness to the world when he comes again. And for those who trust in him, that will be the provision of full blessing. It says this in verse 2, but for those who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. 
There are lots of different opinions in the commentators and in the academics who know more than I do about what this means. But there are some things that I can say with confidence. The first of all, it speaks of the coming of the sun. What is, when does the sun come? It comes in the morning after darkness. That though right now you may be experiencing a period of darkness, it seems like the wicked are winning, the dawn is coming. And what happens when light appears? First of all, we see the light, but the light also reveals. When God comes, perfect righteousness, not partial righteousness, not incomplete justice, but full righteousness like the glory of the sun will shine. And in that full light, it will also display those who are in the light while eradicating those who are in the darkness. The light of righteousness will shine upon God's people. And notice with that light, it says healing comes in its wings. It's not just an end to what is wrong, but a making right of what was broken, a reversal of fortunes. And so what's costly now about turning the cheek or going the extra mile or not returning evil for evil, what's broken when we are persecuted for the sake of the gospel, what we lose giving it over to God in these moments, God will heal and make right. And in that moment, there will be a complete reversal. It says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. When I think about the great day of the Lord, that's not the first image I think of is me being a little cow. But part of their struggle, and even what kind of Psalm 73 alludes to, is that the the wicked are prospering. They're fat and they're happy. That's the picture of the little calf here. It's released from the stall, and that seems nice. Oh, he's, he's no longer crowded in the stall. But why would they keep a young calf in the stall? So they can fatten it up. This calf is fat, and it's released into the field, and it is happy. Whereas before, God's people feel oppressed, They feel trapped. They feel lean, like they don't have enough. God so completely reverses it in the day of justice when he comes to make his people fat and happy. And not only are we fat and happy, but those who were oppressors, who stood over us, who stepped on our throats, on our necks, with knees to our back, where will they be? They will be under our feet. Ashes under the soles of your feet. But how does that come about? Because God's people take up arms? Because we have the power to overthrow injustice and evil in the world? No, because God comes with full and perfect justice, giving those who are oppressed under sin joy and delight and fullness in his provision. God's people say, what profit is there in serving the Lord? And if what is worthwhile is a couple of extra acres, a larger crop, a bigger home, a bigger name, then they might be right in asking that question. If what you want most in life is a few years, a few decades of bigger and better, then maybe serving God is not for you. But if you want what those things claim to offer, significance, a lasting legacy, the enjoyment of prosperity, then look not to those things and using God for those things. Look to God who sees you, 
who remembers those who turn to him in faith with fear and esteem and is coming to make all things right for you. Is it vain to serve the Lord? What profit is there in going before the Lord? I would say there is all profit and all gain. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we often look to your gifts instead of you, the giver. We often claim sight that we do not have. We fear that you will forget us. But Lord, we come to the promises of your word this morning and ask that we will respond knowing that you see perfectly, that you will remember us on the day when you come and make all things new. And on that day, it will be glorious and happy and beautiful and just. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.